So um, again, I want to welcome our guest, uh, special guest, Beth Revis. Um, and let me just, um, sorry about this. Uh, so let me introduce Beth. In addition to teaching in the MFA program at SNU, Beth is a New York Times bestselling author with books available in more than 20 languages. Her most recent title, the aptly named Princess and the Scoundrel, is a Star Wars adult science fiction novel featuring the marriage and adventure riddled honeymoon of Leah and Han. That has got to be a dream uh, to write a book like that, and we'll talk about that in just a bit. Beth's other books include the best-selling science fiction trilogy Across the Universe, Star Wars Rebel Rising, Dark Fantasy Duology, Give the Dark My Love, and the twisty contemporary A World Without You. She's the author of additional novels as well as numerous short stories and articles. Beth is the co-owner co of Wordsmith Workshops and the author of the Paper Hearts series, both of which aid aspiring authors. A native of North Carolina, Beth is currently working on multiple new novels. She lives in rural North Carolina with her son and husband. So, Beth, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's so let me let me just jump right in. Um, it has got to be uh, a thrill. I mean, I can from your bio, I see that that um, you're not a newbie to the to the Star Wars IP world. You've you've written a Star Wars novel before, but mm -hmm. this this one must have been a particular uh, joy and challenge. So can you tell us a little bit about like um, how you came to be uh, to write this this particular novel? Yeah, I um, I was actually very fortunate in that they approached my agent because they were looking for somebody to write this type of a novel. And as soon as my agent pitched the project to me, I leapt at the opportunity because <laughs> this is, I mean, this really is like, as you mentioned, it's a dream come true. Like not only is it Star Wars, but it's Han and Leia is having a hugely momentous uh, moment in their lives. Um, so I, I was absolutely thrilled. I jumped on right away. Um, I started with just basically a pitch that was maybe half a page long and it was just, you know, it's going to be the wedding. It's going to lead into a honeymoon and then like a side quest adventure that developed from that. Yep. And uh, from there, I I wrote like the wind because IP usually has very short deadlines. <laughs> what, what was your turnaround time for this now? Oh, uh, so from the pitch to the book being published and on shelves was less than a year, which wow. is absolutely wild in terms of publishing. Um, I got the pitch in August of last year. I had my outline done by the beginning of October-ish, and I started writing the novel in November and turned in the final draft in the middle of January. Wow. So it was extraordinarily fast. Happy holidays. <laughs> oh, my family didn't see me at all. I was just like, bye everyone, here's your Christmas presents, wrap them yourselves. <laughs> so let me ask you about the outline that you prepared for this project, um, mm -hmm. because that's something, as you know, that our, our students are expected to do in the MFA. Oh, and that reminds me, I'm sorry, let me just uh, kind of veer off course here slightly. I promise I'll come back. What I want to do um, for, for this particular uh, uh, Wireside Chat event is welcome any new viewers that we have, because for the very first time due to popular acclaim, we are opening the Wireside Chat to um, students in the MA Creative Writing Program and the BA Creative Writing Program. So if any of you are here, welcome, and I hope to see uh, 
see you again. I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, let me go back to Beth. So um, a lot of our students have to have to write outlines for their thesis novels, and it's a it's a difficult process. Um, and sometimes they wonder, well, why why do I have to do it? I'm a pantser. I'm not a plotter. And one of the things I tell them is, well, if you're hired to write, you know, a, a tie in novel or <clears throat> some kind of IP novel, you are going to have to produce an outline. How um, detailed was your outline and did you get any kind of feedback on it? Did you have to go through different drafts of the outline? Um, my outline for The Princess and the Scoundrel was highly detailed. I did a chapter by chapter outline. So every chapter had about a paragraph summary. And that was really, really important because the story is told in alternating points of view between Han and Leia, one chapter each, and it goes back and forth. So I couldn't just mess up one chapter because then that would throw off the flow of everything else. Right. So the, the outline, I ended up setting them, I think it was like 10 pages long. It was really, really huge. But I have to say, the first outline I ever did in my life for a novel was my other Star Wars book, Rebel <laughs> Rising. And for exactly the reason that you just said, uh -huh. because I was a pouncer. I, all my first books, all I'm trying to think of how many there were, all like five or so of my first books, I wrote without an outline at all. And then when I got the the offer to write Rebel Rising, the story of Jin Erso from Rogue One, the first thing they said was, well, you'll need to turn your outline in by X date. And I had an internal panic because I'd never written an outline before. And I had to teach myself very, very quickly how to do it. So it's absolutely valuable practice and very worthwhile to do. I write with the outlines almost always now. Really? And how did you teach yourself to do that? <laughs> just <laughs> sheer panic and desperation. Uh. <laughs> and I just I slapped together something. It was not anywhere near as detailed as the first one. I think it was just a couple of pages long and it was very, very thin. And fortunately, my editors worked with me back and forth and helped me flesh it out more. But it was it was a panic moment for sure. I wish I had had practice on it beforehand. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're trying to, to give our students. But on, on the other hand, you know, panic is a is an incredible uh, teacher and, and motivator. Yeah. <laughs> so, Melissa, do you do you write from outlines? I, I love. Melissa, we're not getting you very well. I think we might be Sort of losing you, in fact. Um, I think you've got a bad connection over there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna just move on, uh, and hopefully the connection will improve. I I am like you. I I I very rarely use outlines. Uh, it's been IP projects, ghostwriting projects that kind of got me into the uh the, the space where I understood that I needed to learn very quickly how to how to write an outline um and on the bright side it's a lot easier to edit an outline than it is to write edit a whole book and it does make the process a lot simpler and I can write faster when I have an outline well when you're when when you when you take a wrong turn in an outline you don't have to turn you don't have to throw away 50 60 pages right okay. you're just throwing and away a few plot points I have thrown away whole novels and if I had only had the outline it would yeah. have been a lot easier <laughs> yeah well well do you feel like you've lost anything by by having the outlines a kind of spontaneity or the ability of a novel or characters to surprise you 
I think that was my biggest fear is that I would lose that. And there has certainly been times where I do think I lost I lost the thread of it before I got into the practice of using outlines. Now I'm so comfortable with it that I can leave it to certain I can, I can I can write the outline and then do the book and still have the surprises because I'm more focused on the language and the prose than I am on the plot twist and I think it makes for a better book in that way you mean you're more focused on the words than the plot twist in the sense that you've got the plot twist there in front of you already so mm-hmm. you kind of know that it's coming up you don't have to worry um, but but I'm sure there must still come times or maybe not when you're when you're writing to your outline where you find yourself suddenly understanding that your characters want to go this way instead of that way. And you've got to give them their their reign. Right. Oh, yeah, I still definitely do that um, for my I actually just finished a project and sent it to my agent this morning and I had written that one from an outline I made but it deviated quite a bit and it took me actually getting in the weeds and writing it to get the right story and we had been butting heads on that outline because it it, there wasn't something right but we weren't sure Mm -hmm. what it was Mm -hmm. and it was actually just saying okay fine ignore the outline I'm just writing it and that's where the actual story came into play so it doesn't always work but at least I had sort of an infrastructure that I could lean on while I developed new ideas. Yeah. And it's interesting that you still sense that there was something missing from the story. Yeah, yeah. We both definitely knew that there was the outline wasn't there yet, but the mm-hmm. the idea was. So we just had to go in and do it. Yeah. And maybe the outline never would have been there. The only way to find out the the true path would have was to write, you know, start writing the novel. Yeah, yeah. It, it was there was something in the voice. It's one of those hard, indefinable things to to really figure out. But it it did work out eventually. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the title of it. Oh, actually, before I before I go into that, uh, I want to invite everyone that's that's um, that's viewing us and and attending the the um, the chat tonight to please post your questions in the um, in the chat, and uh, I will um, field them and and pass pass them along to Beth. Um, so, I mean, your title is such a perfect title for um, for for the, the project of your book, for the plot, for the characters. But it's also got this kind of uh, vibe of like almost like a Regency romance, uh, which I'm sure you did on purpose. Um, romance is always like a kind of a strong undercurrent of of Star Wars, especially the original um, trilogy. Um, but are, are, are you kind of. And I mean, given the, the subject matter of this particular book, are are you kind of um, writing a, a more romance forward sort of Star Wars book? Oh, this one's definitely a romance forward Star Wars book. I mean, it, it's it's about the wedding. It's about the honeymoon. Uh, it's still it's still a Disney title. So, you know, we closed the doors on the Millennium Falcon, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's absolutely a romance. Like the heart of this book is. These are two people in love who dedicate their lives to each other. There's there is still action and adventure. And they, of course, have to save a planet from blowing up and fight the empire, which isn't truly gone. But it's it is absolutely romance. And it immediately uh, appeared on the on the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations for that. That's Thank also got to be an incredible thrill. <sighs> yes, I can breathe again. <laughs> <laughs> So um, so let's let's look at some of the uh, perhaps more negative aspects of, of working in IP. Um, 
as everybody probably knows or can guess, uh, when you sign on to an IP project, um, you're working with characters that you didn't create and don't own the rights to, and and therefore your number. Well, I don't. I'm actually not going to get into that. I don't. That's none of my business. But um, but but there are limits to what you can do to these characters or do with these characters. There's certain. Uh, there's like. Um, uh, uh, a by a story bible that you can't really diverge from in terms of like major plot events like you couldn't kill a major character who is who is part of the part of the established storyline so how do you not navigate but or or walk that tightrope between you know the kind of total creative control that you're used to as a writer in your own work and then having to kind of stay in your lane or or between these lines for the ip work yeah, actually, I ended up comparing this a lot to writing a historical novel in that mm. I know the events, I know the characters. And like if I was going to write about Henry VIII, I couldn't kill him off before his sixth wife. Like it just it historically doesn't happen. And that's very similar to what I was writing about here in a galaxy a long time ago is mm -hmm. that. I know exactly where these characters are going to be. And there were time constraints to that because there's other books that exist. There's books, there's comic books, there's movies. So the timeline to the book was actually very highly dictated by the end of Return of the Jedi, the movie, and the beginning of a comic called Shattered Empire. So I, I had a 21-day window in the timeline yep. to get them married and on their honeymoon and in an adventure. So it was it, that part was definitely very constrained, but I absolutely approached it as if I was writing a historical novel or a are a biography of these two characters and just filling in the blanks that existed within the timeline. And that made it a lot more fun to write. There, there mm -hmm. were challenges involved, but it was still a really fun exploration into it. I, th I think that's what's fun. I mean, I, I write kind of uh, uh, historical uh, flavored fiction myself, and, and that's definitely a, a lot of the fun of it is, is it's like a puzzle where, yeah. where you, your plot has to fit within um, certain factual details that can't really be altered. It, it's a really good feeling when you manage to solve that puzzle. Yeah, that's exactly the way to look at it as a puzzle. <laughs> <laughs> so were, was there ever a time with uh, the princess and the scoundrel where, where you where you were received pushback from from uh, Del Rey or or from Lucasfilm about or Disney about about a path that you were taking or, or were they just on board and supportive the whole way? They were they were really on board and supportive. And part of that was because of the outline, because we already established who was going to be where and and which players were going to be a part of it. And we never uh, really bumped into any kind of differences on that. The only time I can think of this happening was with Rebel Rising. I put in a character at the end and they were like, I'm sorry, you, you can't use that character. And then come mm -hmm. to find out that character was already being published. Like it was already at the printers in a comic book somewhere else on the completely other side of the galaxy. So just, <laughs> I mean, it's perfectly reasonable. You can't yeah. have them in two places at one time. <laughs> right, right. That's amazing. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of, the Star Wars has become such a vast uh, universe uh, with so many different tributaries flowing into the main storyline. It, it kind of reminds me in a way of like, uh, you know, something like Marvel Comics, which now even have the movies that where they have to deal with. And there's like all of these kind of one off stories that get printed in the comic books that take place in like, you know, the the 24 hour period between what happened in issue 75 of Iron Man and what happened in, you know, the Avengers, uh, sec, you know, the second Avengers movie. 
Yeah, it, it gets very, very complicated. There are people whose whole job is to just keep the story straight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Elizabeth Janowski, uh, is asking, is there a huge Gantt chart somewhere? Uh, not not that I have or that I've seen, but um, I, I will confess to going on Wikipedia quite often and doing some quick fact checks on that. Yeah, yeah, I know you have to. I mean, I know that, you know, uh, George Martin, for example, maintains a, a, a cater of of uh, of loyal readers who who supply the internal consistency for all of his books. And and he, he relies on them. I mean, he can't keep it straight. Yeah, I mean, those big stories, they just, they become so vast. Yeah. So here's here's another question from uh, Tim Pipkin. Uh, if it's a puzzle, do you feel there's a Joseph Conrad slash Aristotelian narrative approach that you take when mapping out your narrative? Have you worked out your own version that you apply, or is it more project specific? I guess he means that you apply kind of generally to everything that you do. It's definitely project specific um, and, and there's different approaches to it. Like with Rebel Rising, that tells the story of Jin Erso from if you've seen the movie Rogue One, it starts off when she's a little girl and then she hides in a bunker and then it flash forwards to when she's an adult. And my book is everything that happens in that flash forward. So there's a definitive end and a definitive beginning. I knew where it fit in with the plot. But the character was completely unknown. Jen Erso had not existed prior to the novel and the movie hadn't even come out when I wrote the novel. Mm. So that one was more of an approach of I need to fill in the character to fit a plot that already exists. Yeah, fascinating. Whereas the scandal was completely the opposite. Everybody in the world knows those characters. Right. <laughs> those characters were set in stone. People know those characters. But I had to make a plot to fit the character. So it was a totally different way to approach storytelling. And yet, I'm sure you you managed to find some uh, character elements, emotional elements that were unique to your to your how you envision those characters, I guess, as as individual people and as a couple. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way to not put yourself in anything you write. If you completely take the author out of the book. It's devoid of any true heart. So there's definitely elements of me within the story, but it was almost like how if you've ever read A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle and how she describes a sonnet and it has a very strict rhyme and rhythm and meter and lines, but you can put anything you want in it. And so it was almost like I had the box, but I could put whatever I wanted into it as long as the right flavor. So I had to keep keep some elements consistent, but add in a lot of my own as well. Yes. Well, I mean, you have to have you have to have something that keeps your interest up in what you're writing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, possibly a lot of the uh, students who are attending and listening to this are, th are thinking, well, this sounds like a pretty good gig, um, <laughs> getting to write about characters that you love. And I've done a couple of tie-in novels myself, um, and it is a lot of fun and and it is a real privilege to be able to work with these characters who are like personally meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. um, ha, so how, how do you how do you come to the point at which uh, you're offered the opportunity to to write a book like this or or do you somehow go out and seek out that opportunity yourself and, and apply for it? I think it depends on the person. Um, I, when I got the offer for Rebel Rising, the first one I did with Star Wars, um, one of the people who were with me, he had pitched himself 
to write for Star Wars. And he had done it that way. And he had worked through the channels and built built up a CV and pitched himself for it. Um, for me, the team approached my agent. And I don't think I would have gotten the job, A, if I didn't have an agent. Mm-hmm. And B, if I hadn't already been well-published in, in the traditional realm in that genre, because I was already writing science fiction. And I even asked my publicist, I was like, how did they find me of everybody on earth? How did they pick me? Like, I'm glad you did, but how? Mm -hmm. And she mentioned that she had followed my social media and and the team Hmm. had seen me being a nerd and geeking out and loving Star Wars. So they knew I already liked it. And they saw that I already had a career in, in science fiction. So it just kind of was kismet. That's great. I mean, because you often hear, and, and again, one of the things that we teach in this program is like, you know, you have, if you're going to use social media, you know, then use it in a way that's that's kind of like strategic to advance your career, so on and so forth. Uh, but instead, you weren't really thinking strategically. You were just out there, you know, geeking out about uh, a, a, a media property that you loved. Uh, and that was that was, in fact, what advertised you to them and brought them to your attention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. Well, so you can you can be who you are, uh, and 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 you know uh, um, uh, make make your preferences and your loves clear clear in social media. It's not going to cost you your career. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, I guess one of, I, I did, you've had, you've had like a, a wonderful experience, it seems like with all of your tie-in work. And mm-hmm. yet I feel like I have to bring up the, the other side of the coin because I know that there are, that there are downsides to it that, that I also want to alert our students to. Oh, um, yeah. So, I mean, what do you have to share about, about that? Or have you had it or heard of any, any any experiences along those lines? Oh, yeah. I I have personally had a fantastic experience with Star Wars, and I would write for them. If they ever want me, again, I will write anything they want because I have loved working with every single person there. But, I mean, of course, authors talk. I know there are other IPs that just from having heard what friends have gone through that I would not want to in terms of, like, insinuating edits and editors who are incapable of comprehending story in a way where it it, be, it just becomes an onerous amount of edits as, as if they're trying to write, have you write to their script as opposed to letting you flex your own crea- creativity muscles. And then also just in general with IP, there's a really, really strict timeline. And the fact that this book went from idea to published book in less than a year is, is really bananas. I can't stress that enough. Like other books can take a year just to come up with inception, let alone sell and be published. And that timeline can be really, really excruciating. And so if you're not a fast writer and that's not something you're comfortable with, that could be a very, very difficult situation to be in for sure. Mm-hmm. Was this the fastest that you've ever written a book? From, from idea to published book, this was the fastest, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think Rebel Rising was also very fast, but I, I had a little bit extra time on that one. And but yeah, yeah, it was it was fast. <laughs> I think I think when I did um I did a Dracula tie-in for for Dark Horse, um kind of a sequel to the Universal Monster pictures. I had about seven months, I think, to 
to to do that novel. And then I I did a Xena tie-in as well, which was kind of a frustrating experience because I had to write the novel that novel in three months, which is definitely the fastest I've ever written a novel. Um, and then at the end of that time, they they pulled a plug on the entire project, which was really frustrating. But that can happen. Oh, that can, and that's happened to me. I have written a whole novel before that the the people I was writing it for, the movie went in a different direction and they didn't want it anymore. But I mean, that that is part of the gig. And we had a kill clause, so at least yeah. I got paid. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, one of the differences as as uh, as as people probably know is that with this kind of work you're not earning royalties by and large i mean i'm sure there are there are some authors in tie-in work that do manage to negotiate a uh, a royalty uh but uh by and large you do not you just receive an upfront lump payment uh or in the case that you just described uh, a kill fee in 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 case the uh the novel uh is killed by, you know, for reasons outside your your responsibility. Um, so here's another question. Uh, what did your day-to-day writing pro- process look like to finish a book that quickly? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I ended up writing almost, the book ended up being about 90,000 words, and I wrote about 65,000 of it in November. And the only wow. reason I know that so strictly is because I was doing NaNoWriMo with friends at the time. Oh, wow. I couldn't tell them what I was doing, but I was like, yeah, I'm working on NaNoWriMo. <laughs> and that that chart just kept going up. Um, it helped to have the outline. And I kept a pretty meticulous record of how many thousand words I wrote per day. And I could not <clears throat> have physically done this had I not had my husband to help with child care and my child to actually be in school during that time. Mm-hmm. And this is my full time job. Like if I was working a another job, I don't think I could have physically managed it like I, I was able to to do snhu and pick up like daytime gigs but not like a regular constantly nine to five job um so those those were my perimeters i had to have the daycare i had to have the time and the focus and then i would just sit at my desk until i got it done and it was often several hours and it was very excruciating and my family ate a lot of pizza uh, but we got through november and then the end was in sight <laughs> right but then what a great feeling when you finally finish the manuscript and turn it in i mean in a way uh i don't want to say it's a better feeling but it then then of work that you've done your own that's taken its own time without without like a huge uh, rush but but still it's 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 you know to to finish an assignment like that i think is it's good. Like when I did the when I did the Xena book, I was like, I can write a novel in three months. I now know that. And yeah. that was that was a great feeling. Yeah, I hope I never have to do it again. Other, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we know we can do this kind of thing now. And it, and it influences like I look at other projects and I'm like, OK, I can do two or three books a year. I can do that. And and I have and I and I can because of that experience. So um, so so moving forward, I mean, do you do you see like when you look at your career now as a professional writer, do you see like this kind of work as being a uh, a component of that career that you want to carry forward into the into the future? Oh, yeah, I actually really love doing it, not just because Star Wars is. It's like a fandom of my heart and that I love it so much. And the people I worked with were so great. But work for hire is 
in some ways less stress because the world already exists, the characters already exist. Mm-hmm. You have created a plot. It's it's less emotionally draining as opposed to some of the other work that I do on my own. And so it's something that I can fit in between projects. And it's almost like a breath of fresh air where I can have a little bit of moment where I'm just having an adventure with friends, with these characters that I know. And and that makes it a little easier. And honestly, at this point in my career, I care a lot about diversification. So I always, my plan is to always have something traditionally published, always have something self-published and if I can fit a work for hire in there that's even better okay I'm I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in just a minute um but I also want to go to a question that we have here um from uh from Liz again um and I'll take a stab at it and then and then I'll pass it over to you uh and and she was wondering how do you make sure that you're going to get paid uh and for work like this I think that's where an agent really is important because the agent will uh, negotiate uh, a kill fee or anything else up front and will and will serve as a mediator. Uh, for example, when the when the Xena book that I mentioned was killed, um, I had to get I had to go to my agent and because they did not want to pay me what we had agreed on as a kill fee. And and I had to go to my agent and and get him to do uh, his job, <laughs> which he did yeah. extraordinarily well. And he got me what I was owed. Um, and uh, so that would be my main suggestion there is that if you score a deal like this uh, use and you don't have an agent, use it to leverage yourself an agent because you might you might well need them. Oh, absolutely. I having my agent on this, even though it is something where um, there are some things that are kind of bound, like I can never have I can never write my own Star Wars book. It has to go through them, that kind of thing. Even then, my agent negotiated better terms, better rates, and she had my back for anything that went wrong. Like it, it was absolutely having an agent that made the difference. Yeah, and that gives you the a little bit more freedom to concentrate on the work at hand, right? Because you don't have to worry about all this other stuff. I've got I've got my agent in my corner. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 huge. Um, and again, I want to invite our guests to please chime in with any any questions that you may have for Beth or about the about the writing process in general or anything like that. Um, what was your tell me about your 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 path to your first novel? Oh, yeah. So I had a very, very long path to having my first novel published. Um, I wrote my first full length novel when I was a sophomore in college, and I knew that I wanted it to be traditionally published. Just that was my personal goal at the time. And so I sent it out to agents, about 100 of them, and all of them came back and was like, nope, absolutely not. This book is terrible. They were much more polite about it, but I was going to say, OK, <laughs> they, were, they were polite, but I can read through those lines. Um, so I wrote another book the next year and sent it out and it was roundly rejected. And I wrote a book, another book the next year. Same thing. I wrote a book a year for 10 years wow. and racked up close to a thousand rejections before the 11th book was across the universe. And that was the one that got me my agent. It actually I ended up with multiple agent offers, which was a fantastic and crazy position to be in. It got me my agent. That one also hit the New York Times bestsellers list. It enabled wow. me to be a full time writer it utterly changed my whole trajectory of my life. So it took 10 years and 10 novels, none of which have ever been or ever will be published and really close to a thousand rejections before I had any success at all. I mean, from the outside, people see like 
this new author, the debut novel comes out, it hits the New York Times bestseller list, and they're thinking, well, what a breeze. I mean, she's <laughs> she's got it made. I mean, it just fell into her lap. And what they don't see is that you put in a, a long and rigorous apprenticeship where, I mean, those 10 novels, you were, I'm sure, learning more and more about about the craft of writing in every one leading up to the novel where you put it all together. Oh, yeah. And and now looking back, I can look at those novels and go, I see why they weren't publishable. I can mm-hmm. see where they they slipped through the cracks of the marketing or they just weren't of good enough quality. But at the time, I didn't know that. I thought they were all really good. But but yeah, it, it's my my publisher even di- um, touted me as an overnight success. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, one night in 10 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, do you ever feel the tempted to go back to any of those novels and, and fix them? No, I'm part of it is is I've just moved on and yeah. like I did the creative thing I wanted to do enough and I have other ideas I'd rather explore. Um and part of them I I, I don't know, I I just I'd rather spend time in new worlds. Yep, I hear you. Yeah. Um so let me move on to some questions that we've got here. Uh here's one from John McAllister. Without any spoilers, what was the most difficult decision you had to make during the revision process? Or was there one? And I'm I, I'm assuming that's that's referring to the princess and the scoundrel. Um, actually, I think because I had the outline, I didn't have any difficult processes with with the revision. I mean, there were certainly things I had to revise, and I did, you know, work with my editors and make the better book. Um, but the, and there were some things like I originally had a different villain at the end with no spoilers, but um, it was a totally different villain. And then in discussing with my editors, we're like, oh, well, what about this other person? And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be great. So all the suggestions from the editors were all really, really positive that I was on board with basically from the start. So it was just a bunch of it. Honestly, writing this book was a bunch of nerds trying to write a really fun book that everybody liked, and we were all working together, and it was hugely collaborative and so much fun. Oh, that's great. I mean, then that, that is that is a somewhat rare situation, <laughs> yeah. I think, in the publishing world. Um, so let me ask another question. This is also from uh, Tim Pipkin. Is there a particular routine that you adhere to when you sit down to write? Any particular hacks or secrets that will make me a guaranteed successful writer? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wish if, if I knew what those were, I would do them. Yeah, share them um, with me. I mean, really, uh, I I do now. I I have when COVID hit, I turned this corner of of my family game room into my office. So I now have like a little dedicated space. It was the first time in oh, it 20 years that I had my own dedicated space to write. So I, I think that helped a little bit that I had my own little space um but honestly like you just got to sit down and do it and yeah yeah I mean I think I think the hack that you that you've already revealed is is a novel a year for 10 years or however long it takes I mean because there are no shortcuts to it there really are no shortcuts and it it is just sitting down and doing it and loving the story enough to write it even when you hate it Mm mm-hmm uh, so here's another question from Devin, who wants to know what kept you from considering self-publishing for those rejected novels? And I guess I want to also piggyback on that question and just ask you more generally about about self-publishing, because you mentioned earlier that that's one facet of your of your uh, of your career plan. Yeah, so I didn't consider self-publishing in the beginning, in part because self-publishing was not as accessible, like Kindle existed, uh, Barnes and 
Noble's Nook existed at that time. It was there, but it wasn't the route I wanted to to do. And for my own personal goal, I I felt for myself that I would not be successful until I hit that threshold. And that was the right path for me because mm-hmm. once I, I was traditionally published and my first book did so well in the traditional market, um, I wrote the whole trilogy of that one and then I self-published a novel and I had an existing fan base that yeah. my publisher built for me so I didn't have to build it from scratch because when you self-publish it is you are also the publisher and that means you also have to do the marketing and find the audience. And I had a bit of a built-in audience from going the traditional route. So I set myself up for success in self-publishing by traditionally publishing first, and it was just more in lines with my own personal goals. So. And what what was the reaction of your agent and your editors at 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 your publisher to your decision to after the three books that you published traditionally to then publish to self-publish your next novel? Did they did they push back at all against that? Um. There was some, my agent did present me with some options, like what if you publish through the agency and things like that, that weren't really that appealing to me. Um, But I also had a traditional book also that I was working on. So I had something else to hand them. Mm -hmm. And they did not think that the one that I self-published was marketable for the market at that time. And so they didn't really want to go forward with that one. So I was like, okay, well then I'm going to do it myself. And here's this other one that you can have instead. And that that I think helped in the long run and and helped me set up on self-publishing and and having the gumption to do it myself in that that aspect. Mm-hmm. I think more and more writers are are choosing that kind of uh, career for themselves, the the freedom to self-publish, but also the uh, uh, advantages that that go along with with being part of a traditional publishing house. Oh, yeah. And traditional publishing, I mean, it does great things in terms of marketing, in terms of building an audience, and frankly, in terms of money for me. I I make far more traditionally publishing than self-publishing by factors of 10. Um, So for me, traditional publishing is the breadwinner, but there's such long gaps between it because traditional publishing is so slow. And Mm -hmm. I'm now at a point I'm writing quicker than traditional publishing can keep up, and I want to have something to bridge those gaps. Let me ask you another question from our from our panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rachel asks, how does your process for self-publishing differ from the process you go through for traditional novels? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, one of the things I have learned through trial and error is that the self-publishing market is actually a little different from the traditional publishing market, specifically in YA, which is what I predominantly write. And so, um, for example, currently I am self-publishing a serial novel called Museum of Magic, and I am writing it very episodically. It's a modern Charles Dickens style in that it's, it's very much episodic and it, and it doesn't have the overarching high stakes roundabout plot that a traditionally published novel would. So there's a totally different style in it that I think works a lot better. And one of the things I'm considering now as I approach new books, when I get a new idea, I ask myself, is this going to be more traditionally marketable in style and content, Hmm. or will I do a better job at self-publishing this in a different style? Mm -hmm. And that that series that you're writing now, uh, that's appearing on Kindle, Mm -hmm. I believe. And it's I don't remember the name of the program, but it's that program that they that they developed that essentially is is like a chapter, chapter mm-hmm. by chapter. What What's that called? It's Kindle Vela. Kindle Vela. That's right. Uh, and, and another one of our instructors uh, uses that as well. Um, so do, do you, and obviously you're you're finding it to be a, a very um, 
useful uh, format for you. I mean, I my impression at this point, uh, even though I haven't yet been as brave as you to avail myself of all these possibilities, but it seems to me like like we're kind of in a golden age of the writer. I mean, even though we hear all of these horror stories, you know, the 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 big five becoming the big four, you know, all of the all of the all of the caveats that are out there. Nonetheless, it seems like writers may have more uh, viable career paths towards making a living at being a writer now than than has ever been the case. Yeah, I call it having lots of little irons in the fire. Instead yeah. of having one really big one, I have a lot of little <laughs> irons. And together, they they add up. So uh, this kind of segues nicely, I think, into the next question from Mr. Pipkin, uh, who wants to know, what do you think about the new evolution we're seeing in crowdfunding for self-publishing written works, like what we've seen with uh, Brandon Sanderson recently? That was incredible. Um, do you see the industry changing in big ways or will the impact of those kinds of uh crowdfunding um projects uh have an impact on the on the i guess the traditional industry i don't i don't know if it will have an impact on the traditional industry um i could see traditional publishers using it for like special editions for an already established author or um, i've seen some traditional publishers sort of crowdsource content for ebook only ventures and things like that what i think the real revolution with that Kickstarter was, was that it reminded people that it takes money to produce books. And it's not just the production of the, the ebook file or the paperback file, it's the production of the author's time. And one of the things that Brandon Sanderson really did very well was explain how many people he had on his teams in his mm -hmm. blog post following the Kickstarter and even in the Kickstarter itself. He was like, I have these people who do marketing and these people who do formatting and these people who do distribution. And it, I think really opened up the eyes of at least his readers that it's not always just a one man person. Even when you're self-publishing, you're, you're wearing a lot of hats and you often have to hire out for other things like graphic design and formatting and things like that. And we're we had a brief moment well not so brief but we had a moment in time where a lot of people were like i'm not going to spend more than 99 cents on the ebook and in many ways that devalued what people consider a book is worth and they're like i'm mm -hmm. never going to spend the 99 cents on an ebook but that is not sustainable and many authors use that as a loss leader but they cannot afford to have every single thing they do be sold only yeah. for a dollar and so hopefully the kickstarter enabled people to see the value and the production costs that go into it so that more people are more aware and cognizant of the idea that they should spend at least as much on a book as they spend on a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. It kind of pulled back the curtain a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, when, you, when you're self-publishing your, your own work, do you kind of try to recapitulate on your end the the steps that your book would go through at a traditional publisher? In other words, you know, cover design, artist, uh, a copy editor, a proofreader, all that sort of thing? For some things, yes, and for some things, no. Um, with Kindle Vela, because it's serialized, I do one chapter a week, and so I completely produce that chapter in that week, and that means the editing as well. And mm -hmm. that also means I don't have a big picture content editor because 
I already have 35 chapters published. I can't go back and edit them. They're already out there. Right. Um, so for that one, no. But for other ones, definitely. And as I'm getting to the point where the serial novel is going to be published into a bound form, I've already hired a uh, – well, I do my own formatting. I taught myself that program. But I've hired an ebook cover artist and a paperback artist, and we're getting, we're getting those gears slowly in motion on everything else. So ultimately with the Velo um, – uh, chapters that you're putting out in that format did they become bundled together at some point and then and then published as a standalone novel yeah yes but only because that's what i'm doing like it, mm-hmm. it does do it automatically through vela but as this as one arc finishes i'm going to mark it as complete and bundle it together myself into a book form okay very cool yeah. uh okay another question um before your self-publishing option took off, what was your process to draw attention to your early self-published works? Well, I didn't self-publish until after I already had an established audience with the traditional publishing. Um, so I didn't do anything with any of the books before I got my agent and sold the first book trilogy. And I actually didn't self-publish until I already had a book deal for the next trilogy as well. Mm. So I had six traditionally published book deals prior to self-publishing anything, even though the self-published novel was my fourth book published. Um, So I I already had the audience there. But one of the things I did very early on that I really, really encourage everyone to do if this is the career that they want is I did pay attention to what self-published authors were doing because self-published authors were breaking boundaries and not relying on their publisher for everything. And so part of that strategy involved things like building a social media audience, but yeah. more importantly for me was building a newsletter audience. Right. And I because saw because you get the mailing list. I'm sorry, what? Because you get a mailing list from that. Exactly. And getting a mailing list became the foundation of all my marketing plans mm-hmm. six years ago, all the way through now. Like that is that is my number one marketing tool is my newsletter list. Yeah, because I mean, like you point out, you know, you embarked on self-publishing when you had already an established audience through your traditionally published work, but still you had to reach those people somehow. Exactly. <laughs> um Here's a question from Kaylee. Uh, how did you learn what you needed to regarding publishing and marketing in order in order to self-publish? And that's a great question because, I mean, it's something that we teach in our program, obviously, but it's still a very, it's a daunting prospect, I think, to many, many uh, young writers. It is absolutely a daunting prospect. And it helps, like I have now hindsight and you know, hindsight's 2020, and I can look back over 10 years of publishing and say, oh, well, I started small and it had a slow build. But that's actually the truth of it is I started pretty small. Whenever there was a social media platform that came out, I jumped on it just to reserve my name and I would Mm -hmm. play around with it. And then eventually I figured out the ones that I enjoyed and stuck with those and dropped the ones that I didn't enjoy. Um, And then whenever I saw other people doing something that was successful, I paid attention to it and I took notes mm-hmm. to it and I would pay attention to what made me buy a book and what made me aware of a book and then try to find ways to copy that. And so if I saw an advertisement, I would pay attention to how that advertisement was written and I would take notes and, and sort of build from there. So it was a lot of watching other people and copying smart people. Yeah, it's it's such a different world. I mean, you know, I, 
when I was when I was just starting out as a writer, there there was I mean there weren't even computers. I started out on an electric typewriter, and there's none of the social media and the skill set that you needed to be to to have in order to be a successful writer was so different from from what is needed today. I think um, the kind of social aspects of of it now, uh, the kind of uh, self-directed um, uh, ownership of one's of one's work and everything. It just seems um, whereas, you know, for me, the dream was always I'm just going to I don't need to be a bestseller. I can just be like a mid a mid list author kind of coasting along. My publisher will take care of everything. I'll just turn in a book every year or every two years. But those days are gone <laughs> and uh, and and writers have had to evolve uh, in order to survive in the new ecosystem. Uh, it seems like you've done extraordinarily well uh, in adapting yourself. And I think there's a, a certain frame of mind, I think, that writers uh, would do well these days to develop in themselves if they don't possess it already. Um, how does one go about developing that if they don't? I mean, if it, if, 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 if you feel like it, it's part of your personality, so to speak, to, to, um, to, to, to be active in this way, that's one thing, but if you feel like you know it's not part of my personality, I'd rather be sitting off somewhere in a in a quiet room and writing, but I don't have that option anymore. So how do you train yourself to to become more of, you know, a different kind of writer, at least as far as business end of things goes? Well, I I believe very strongly that your presence on social media and in your newsletter and whatever you are when you're talking to people, it should not be a constant advertisement. I feel that very, very strongly and that people who do make their social media and their their marketing plan to just be an advertisement is not going to be as effective. Instead, I look at it as all social media is part of my community and I'm building my community and talking with people who have the same interest as me and their interests are not just my books, much like I have interests beyond just my books. Um, and then I, I do the same thing with my newsletter. I am a pretty strong advocate that a newsletter should be done on a schedule, not strictly, but I do mine once a month. Mm -hmm. And when I've talked other authors about it, they've said things like, oh, I don't have anything that's happening every month. I don't have something to talk about. I'm like, you don't have to just talk about your book. You can talk about something that inspired you. You can talk about craft. You can talk about a trip that you went on and research that you're doing or your future plans. There's more to talk about than just selling yourself. Mm -hmm. And so if you approach it as I'm building a community and I just want to have a conversation about the things I like with people who like the same things I like, it kind of shifts the focus. You know, I almost wonder if like one of the things that we talk about a lot in our program, especially like starting right from five, MFA 505, which I'm teaching this term is, you know, the idea of the imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me that 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 may be another facet of the imposter syndrome. The idea that, you know, of paralysis in the face of like, you know, doing this stuff on social media, I don't have what what. You know, I can talk about my work, but why would anybody care about my opinion on X, Y, or Z? But whereas in reality, it is your opinion about X, Y, and Z that is really going to be what attracts people to you because you're being yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, I mean, much like because I was a Star Wars nerd, yep. I got the Star Wars IP project. Like, yep. it was, was just, just me that. liking the things I like and talking about them. Yep. Um. Do we have any other questions for our for our guest? 
So uh, what is next? What is next for you? Are you are you uh, returning to your own work? Do you have like a big project in the works? I have so many projects in the works. <laughs> <laughs> I I just turned an adult science fiction literally today into my agent. Yay. Um, so hopefully that'll that'll go out soon. Um, I have a young adult historical fantasy coming out next fall um, about the real history of the Trier witch trials in Germany, but with a fantasy edge that I co-wrote with Sarah Roche, who is also a best-selling um, young adult author. And um, that will be a two-book series. I have Museum of Magic, which I'm publishing every single week. It's a really fun uh, combination of doing tarot cards with my readers and then we build a chapter almost like a D&D choose your own adventure style game um, and that book is going to wrap up by the end of the year followed is by that, the sequel is that the Vela uh, yep, novel that's, the that's mm -hmm. Museum of Magic Museum of Magic yeah I'm trying to find a, a link for it <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's on um, Kindle Vela and uh, also on Patreon for international readers since Vela's not open everywhere and I'm also just starting a new uh, YA novel, so many, many irons in the fire. <laughs> I just I just threw it into the chat. There it is. Uh, thank you. I hope you yeah, all check it out. The first three episodes are free. <laughs> all right. <laughs> give, them, give them a taste for free, and then they'll keep coming back. That's the, that's the big plan. <laughs> um, well, we're kind of winding down. Um, does anybody else have a have a last question for Beth? Um, I'm I'm going to, uh, in that case, um, kind of wind things down. Uh, Beth, thank you so much for for coming to join us. Um, what tell tell me what you're teaching this term? Um, I'm teaching editing and coaching. Uh, is it 608? I think it is 608. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's what I'm teaching this semester. So where does where does editing and coaching kind of fit in uh, with the uh, uh, with your other career um, uh, and professional um, uh, pathways? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I do in addition to writing is I co-own a program called Wordsmith Workshops, where we do writing coaching and uh, career management, helping people finish their novels, critiquing their novels. So it's a little bit of a mix of all the editing and coaching aspects. Um, so if you have a manuscript that you'd like to get a second set of eyes on, that is something that I and my co-owner do. And we also run workshops and classes, and we're actually going on a retreat in about two weeks. Um, where where so are you guys going? We're going to be in Texas, and nice. it's all about um, editing your next novel, so that's going to be a fun one. I hope that's the correct uh, link that I threw up there into the chat. Oh, I can't not... see, but it's just wordsmithworkshops.com. Okay. Oh, in that case, I I, I, <clears throat> I hit a, a Substack, so oh. I don't know if that's <laughs> well, your... We also have a newsletter on Substack because I believe in the newsletter. <laughs> oh, maybe that's it. Wordsmith Workshops, Retreats, and... I think that's you. Hopefully. <laughs> well, hopefully it is. It's correct. <laughs> Tim, Tim, Tim says it's correct. All right. So I haven't I haven't advertised a competitor. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> that would not have been my intent. Um, well, uh, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're very fortunate to have you as an instructor in our uh, program. I'm very grateful to you for the uh, the work that you do on behalf of our students and um, for taking the time tonight to 
to visit with us and and talk about your your career and your process. It's my pleasure. I have loved working at, at SNHU. It's been great. All right. Thanks so much. And everybody, um, thank you so much for for coming tonight. Um, our next event will be um, a month from now on the second Monday of October, whenever that may be, also from eight to nine, uh, guests to be announced. And I hope by then uh, Melissa's um, internet difficulties have resolved themselves and, and she'll be back, to, back with us. I hope to see you all again then. And, and until then, I, I wish you all good night.